So what inspires you? I mean, in terms of maybe painting, for example, or, or watercolor. Music inspires me a lot. I, and also the lighting. You know, if it's... I like uh, when I'm working for it to be quiet and listen to nice either classical music or um, acoustic guitar. Um, maybe a little bit of uh, Miles Davis, a little bit of jazz. Very soft though, not very loud. And just, uh, you know, the lighting condition is also uh, important to me uh, when, I, uh, when I work. I also, uh, what inspires me is looking at other artists' work. It doesn't have to be uh, a photography or another painter. It can be sculpture, it can be jewelry, it could be uh, weaving rugs. I mean, it doesn't necessarily have to be the same medium that I'm working in, but I also find inspiration from other artists. Just. Uh, seeing what they do and uh, how they master what they do and uh, you know basically just enjoying their artwork. Why is it that another medium can inspire you know an artist working let's say in photography for example or in painting? How, how do, you, do you explain that? That you can see a sculpture for example and then be inspired to go and create a painting? How does that inspire me? Yeah, how does that work? Um, because I start looking at things differently. I start thinking about what I am working on, and then I'm looking maybe at a sculpture, and maybe I'll come up with different ideas, or maybe I'm struggling with some area that I'm working on, you know, and uh, sometimes I can find solutions, you know, or, you know, different ways of depicting something so that, you know, it looks more three-dimensional as opposed to two-dimensional because that's what we're always fighting with in photography and in drawing and painting is that we're using a two-dimensional surface and we're rec we are recreating that three-dimensionality which is very difficult to do. So, uh, I yeah, don't know. I, I'm all ears. <laughs> yeah. I think it's interesting. I mean, I remember yeah. going to the Scottsdale Museum of Art a couple of years ago and seeing these beautiful wooden balls that were carved with uh, either a chainsaw or a very big chisel. Oh, I remember that. Yeah. And, and I was very inspired and, and I thought, you know, this is weird. I mean, here, I'm look here I am looking at some extremely primitive wooden balls. Exactly. Th those are balls carved out of tree trunks, literally. I mean, the person would just fall a tree, cut it down, you know, timber. <laughs> right, exactly. And then take the trunk and carve into it with either a very, very rough chisel or a chainsaw and maybe some rasp to f smooth it down afterwards. Uh, huge bolt, I mean, they would be like two feet across. You yes, know? they were. And extremely thick. I mean, definitely not made to be used, just made to be sculptures, to be really uh, visual. Uh, objects, you know, more than utilitarian objects. Yes, and they all needed their own space. I remember that. They were displayed that, on tree trunks. Yes, yeah. but also to appreciate it, if you right. purchase something like that, that that piece right. would have to have its own space so that you could walk around it because you couldn't really enjoy the beauty right. of the whole piece unless you could, you know, walk around it and see it from all different views and uh, take it all in.
and very tactile very nice. or tactile. I wanted to touch it and I did and of course I got reprimanded by the <laughs> Yes you did. <laughs> by the guards. Well yes because you're videotaped. Yeah. <laughs> but that's the story of my life. I mean I've been yeah. uh, reprimanded by wardens since I could walk so um, you know in Paris I, I did everything that I couldn't do you know and uh, so anyway, you, you know, they, they have to be felt. I mean, those were pieces that had to be felt. And, and I, uh, I went home and I felt very inspired to create photographs. And I, you know, I, I wondered, well, why? I mean, there's nothing in common with photography whatsoever. Because, you know, with photography, you, you don't even deal with an object that you can touch. Right. right. But I think that what I was inspired with was, was the energy of the The tactile pieces. qualities. The tactile quality, the color, the... I think the way I put it is the energy. Mm -hmm. You know, um, Chantal Beguet, you know, who is a Navajo artist that's becoming uh, quite well known now, uh, and whose style is very much like Van Gogh, using brush strokes that are very much like pencil marks. You know, he's drawing with his brush stroke the way Van Gogh was doing it. Was asked one day where he found his inspiration, and obviously, uh, you know, people were saying, you know, do you find your inspiration in Van Gogh, right? Because his style is so similar. And his answer was that Van Gogh had tapped into a source of energy that was very much available for other people. Right. And that he may have tapped into the same source of energy. But he wasn't trying to duplicate Van Gogh in any way. Mm -hmm. And I found that a very interesting answer because, you know, I, I mean, I don't know if it's true or false. I've got to go with his work. You know, I'm not going to question it. But definitely, there is energy in art. And it doesn't have to be something new age or incomprehensible or mystical. It's just the energy of the creator. This person went in there and did something that they did not have to do. And they did it to express how they felt, to express all sorts of things. And when you look at it, if you really appreciate it and you really understand it, you, you get that energy. It's communicated to you. And, and I think that's what I resented. I, I resented created, creative energy. So, you know, to go back to what we were talking about, going to a museum can be extremely inspirational. Mm -hmm. Because you get, if you see a show, if you see a display of art that's to your liking, that you really enjoy, you get a certain amount of creative energy. Mm -hmm. It's like refilling your gas tank, going to the gas station and refilling your gas tank, or recharging your batteries. I mean, you, you, you receive a certain amount of creative energy, and it makes you want to go ahead and create something. Right. Well, what about uh, working with other artists? Do you find inspiration working with other artists? It depends on the artist. Yeah. I, I think it's, uh, it, it can be very inspirational. Right. But it depends on how open the others are. The other artists are, right. exactly. Are they open-minded? Are they open to working with others? Are they even interested in working with others? Or are they the kind that shut off everything around them and just want to be left in their little world? Right. And, and there's nothing wrong with either approach, but obviously if you want to get inspiration from another artist and this artist says, you know, the way I work is I have to be completely alone, it's not going to work, right. <laughs> obviously. Right. So you, you have to, to choose uh, the proper artist. You know? Right. I know when I do figure drawing that I really like working with, a, with other artists, you know, when we're drawing nudes and sketching nudes. And I also found inspiration when I taught in Chin Lee. I would do artwork side by side with my students. Mm -hmm. And they felt inspired by me and I felt inspired by them. But, you know, at 12, 13, and 14, they are very open-minded. I mean, they haven't started building up those walls, you know, yet. And uh, they're very 
very open to a lot of things, and I think that's what I really enjoyed working with them was uh, was that, and you know, they were enthusiastic, you know, and they wanted to learn and they wanted to study and. You know, they were excited, you know, and so uh, they were excited about what I was doing, and uh, I was excited about what they were doing, <laughs> you know. Yeah, they are not stuck in their ways yet. No, they aren't. Yeah. That happens when they get older, <laughs> unfortunately. And I think it's an obstacle to creativity in many yeah. ways. Well, and maybe in the uh, Navajo culture, you know, it may not develop like that, because since art is so much part of their culture, they may not have that problem as they get older because mm -hmm. most of them have a relative that is making a living off of their artwork. So it's something that mm -hmm. they're exposed to constantly. So, you know, maybe they're not as, uh, you know... They tap into a different source of energy. Right. The, the thing that amazes me with Navajo culture and, and with Indian culture in, in general, but Navajo Hopi and Zuni culture is the one, the three cultures that we are the closest to. Uh, we obviously live in Arizona where we have to drive just a few hours to be in the heart of uh, these uh, Indian cultures. The thing that amazes me the most is how they can apparently endlessly reinvent their own culture in different visual ways. Right. Or reinvent what they're doing, uh, whether it's basketry or weaving, you know, it's really interesting because the Navajos, they will come up with just radical ways of doing something traditional like rug weaving, mm -hmm. you know, whether it's designs or the color combinations that they use. And I think that culture being so open, and they're also not very critical you know, towards other artists. I've noticed that at shows and stuff, when Navajos would look around, walk around and looking at other Navajos uh, artwork, they weren't very, they didn't look at it with a critical eye and say, you know, well, I don't think you should do that or or how strange or or any of that. I think they, they just take things in, you know, they just take it in. And uh, I remember we would see some really incredible uh, silversmith work there that, that you wouldn't see anywhere else, you know, uh, because they take these ideas from other things and they put it into whatever their medium is. And uh, they're not afraid to experiment, you know. That's what I love about that, those cultures, you know. It's actually encouraged experimentation, uh, well, I believe. They are not judgmental. I mean, in Navajo culture, and of course in Hopi culture and in Zuni culture, it's 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 not good to judge your neighbor, to judge somebody else. And of course it's not good to judge another artist. So they are not going to judge the work of another artist in terms of good or bad. Right. They may not even go as far as to give an opinion. Yes. I mean, not only are they going to hold back or not even think of giving a judgment, but very often they, are, they won't even give you an opinion. That is, they won't even say, I like it or I don't, which is an opinion. Okay? It's not a fact. I like it or I don't is not a fact. It's an opinion. They'll just say, you know, you just have to, ex you know, it's, for example, they'll say, you know, uh, he, he's really into this. Mm -hmm. You know? Right. I mean, they'll, they'll basically say, you know, he's tapping into that source of energy. He's really into this, you know. 
yeah, he he's doing some pretty wild stuff, you know. Right. You know, right. or they'll be very enthusiastic. They'll say, "Hey, God, I'm man. You know, I really think you you really do some wild stuff, you know. Right. Uh, you know, or I, they'll shake your hand like they'll shake your hand. So, you know, I, yeah, you know, I think right. that's cool, you know. Or they'll just smile. They don't just smile. Yeah. Right. I mean, I had some come to me and look at my work and shake my hand and just walk away. Yeah, and and, you, and not say a word. And not buy anything. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, obviously they don't have any money or they don't want to buy it, but they are just appreciative. Right. right. But I had a lot of them trade with me. Right. I mean, I did endless trade. They I mean, would I ask could, you if you would yeah, trade. I yeah. could have traded all day long, but I had to make some money. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, they are not judgmental. So, therefore, they, they, you know, when you... So, therefore, they are, they are very free in what they create. Right. Because... The, the, you know, as you know, when we do a print review, we call it a print review, not a print critique. Right. And everybody that takes a workshop wants a print critique, or just about everybody. And I think it's because they don't quite understand the difference. And some of them say, well, it's really semantics. You know, semantics is the field that studies the meaning of words, right? You know, semantic is saying, you know, this word means that and this word, other word means that. So they say, you know, it's really a matter of semantics. You know, the, the meaning of review versus the meaning of critique is really very close, right? Well, yes, it is. But it also pulls apart when you think that one is a judgment. You know, a critique is by definition saying this is good, this is bad. In, in, in different ways. But it's really a judgment that you pass upon somebody's artwork in, a, in our situation versus a review where you say, you know, I really enjoy watching this image or I really like what you've done here. Or, I think those colors work well or maybe, you know, those colors don't work as well or the composition could be improved. And, and all of that is really an opinion. Right? Right. It's not a fact. It's my opinion. It's what I think of this. It doesn't mean that everybody's going to think that way. Uh, but a critic is really an attempt very often to influence others to believe that what you're saying is, you know, more or less, you know, an absolute fact. Right. So I always try to, to bring people to do a review and not to do a critique. And, and uh, uh, of course, I can do it very well because I've, I've had many years of experience and I know what I'm doing. But very often workshop participants can't do it as well. And we know for a fact that the most critical people of the workshop participants. I mean, we are extremely critical of each other's work. And if we let it go, they'll rip each other to pieces sometimes. Yeah, they're very uh, hard on each other. Yeah, yeah. I find that photographers um, tend to be a lot harsher on each other than other artists. I mean, you don't see painters being that hard on each other when they're looking at each other each other's work or sculptors, you know, mm -hmm. I'm talking about the other visual arts, uh, you just don't see that harshness, you know, um, and, well, and I don't know if it's because um, in photography, uh, I don't know if realism plays a part in that or not, I'm not sure, you know, there's something there. <laughs> there's something. There's something. What what it is? I gotta yeah. figure it out. There's something, and I'll yeah. be damned if I figure out what it is. <laughs> but I think I know what it is. I I think it's the fact that photography is a very very technical field. Right. While you look at painting, and painting is not a very technical field. I mean, don't get me wrong. You have to have the technique. Right. But you don't face nearly as much. I mean not even close, the kind of technical difficulties that we face in photography. Right. And, and I explain it like this. If you 
if you look at a printing, for example, you know, for printing a photograph, uh, making an inkjet print, uh, and you compare it to, let's say, the work of, a, of an impressionist painter like Monet, right? And and so you have on the one hand an inkjet print, you know, maybe done on the Epson 4800, for example, at this time, and then you have a painting by Monet. And you look at the kind of difficulties that the person who did the inkjet print had, and you look at the kind of difficulties that Monet had, and it goes something like that. Did Monet have problems with metamorphism? No. No. <laughs> you know, all your paints don't change color right. in different lights because they are pigments and, and they are not really placed on a reflective surface the way a pigment is on a piece of white photographic paper which is reflective. It's just seen like that. There is no metamorphism. Did Monet have problems with color gamut? Right. No, he didn't. The color was exactly the color that, it, that came out of the tube, or the color that he mixed on his palette. It was up to him. It was he up could, to him. He could mix any color he wanted. Right, and what he saw on his palette was what he put on his canvas, and when he dried, it did not change colors. Right. There were no limitations. Right. Oil spans don't change colors when they dry. They right. don't change colors because the medium that's used is oil, and it's actually very little dilution. It's, it's an oil, it's not a water. It's, right. There's no... There's really hardly any changes, right. okay? But, you know, when you look at the color on your monitor and you look at the color on your print, that's where all the problems come from because a lot of photographers have huge difficulties matching the two, right. okay? And of course, if you look at the color of your film and the color on your monitor and the color on your, on your prints, it's, it's even more of a difference. Uh, did Monet have any problems with noise in the shadows? <laughs> did Monet have any problem with blocked highlights or shadows that didn't have any details? Right. No, it didn't. Because he could put the amount of detail that he wanted in the highlights and he could put the amount of detail that he wanted in the shadows. We can't. We depend on what the camera recorded. Right. If the camera did not record any detail in the highlights, we don't have any. Right. And if the camera did not record any detail in the shadows, we don't have any. And there is no amount of trying that's going to put it in. It's just not there. It wasn't recorded. Uh, and we can go on like that. You know, did, did Monet have problem with vignetting? Did Monet have problem with uh, film grain, with dust, with hot spots, with one side of the photo being darker than the other? With, uh, for example, like I said, you know, the photograph having a blue tint right. because the sensor records more blue than another. Um, was it? Did he have a problem with white balance? Or did he, you know, I mean, what was the white point? Was was it properly white, balanced for daylight or was it balanced for tungsten light? I mean, you know, none of that happened. The life of a painter, an oil painter, is a lot simpler. Mm -hmm. Because they see something and they paint it. And the difficulty is really to be able to physically, rip, you know, paint what you see, which, which is a very, very important technical challenge. But you don't have to go through the intermediary step of using a machine, the camera, to record what you've seen and then deliver to you something that comes as close as possible to what you saw. Right. And that's why we, I think these people are critical. They're like, oh, you don't know how to use Photoshop. Well, you know, you could have used noise reduction or you did not sharpen it properly. They are very rarely critical at the artistic level. They don't look at each other and say, you don't have any talent. They look at each other and say, you need to, to study Photoshop. Right? Or, or you need to use a better lens. Right. Right. Or you need to learn how to focus. I mean, they are, they are really critical at those levels. Mm -hmm. At the technical level. At the very technical right. level. And the technical level that's peculiar, that's specific to photography. Right. So that when they move, okay, if we move to a painter talking to another painter, 
Even if an other painter wants to be extremely critical, they don't have all of this film to address. Yeah. It's gone. Right. They, they have to look at the other and say, well, you need to learn how to use a paintbrush. Or you really need to learn how to color mix so your colors don't look so muddy. Right, right. <laughs> Which is everything that right. we learn in the beginning of painting, is how to mix It's a color. completely <laughs> different world. I mean, exactly. And, and it's not as critical because you're, if you say, well, what do you mean? You know, it's not really, a, it's not as insulting as to say, well, you can't even focus your camera. Right. It's, you're like, well, what do you mean? I mean, you know, I thought I mean, like, it makes them well. Right. So there is more of a give and take, you know, it's right. not an absolute sort of judgment, you know. Well, talking about Monet, we should, uh, since we're talking about him, we should discuss uh, what inspired him, because he actually made his garden, you know, for inspiration. Yeah, let, let's, let's talk about that. I think it's a very interesting topic. Because that's what uh, he did for inspiration. You right. know, he created his own uh, gardens. Right, he went out, and of course he didn't do that in the beginning because he was poor, but he became quite well off from selling a lot of paintings to the French government. Yeah, large pieces yeah. too. Monet was very much, uh, was well connected. Yes, he was. You know, with the French government. I mean, yes. if we, if it was today in the U.S. government, we'd say that he was a lobbyist, you know, almost. Mm -hmm. I mean, he was very well connected. He actually had lunch with the French president. The French president would come to Giverny, uh, Giverny, which is where Monet lived uh, when he had his garden, and have dinner with him. Right. And he would be invited at the Elysee, which is the palace where the French president lives, and have dinner with him. Right. Um, very, very influential uh, painter. He was also one of the few artists that lived long enough to where he did become famous and really right. started making some money. Yeah, Van Gogh, <laughs> Van Gogh did not have that look no, because he, he, he uh, committed suicide, so that, that did it. But uh, yeah, it's a very interesting thing because he actually became wealthy enough that he could buy a piece of land uh, away from Paris. You know, in, in what it's not even the Paris suburb. I mean, it's not that far from Paris, but it's in the countryside. And at the time, it was further from Paris because Paris wasn't as big right. as it is today. You know, uh, if we wait long enough, all of France will be Paris. You know. <laughs> But, and then he did something else, he changed, he modified the landscape to make it not photogenic, but painterly. Yes, exactly. Uh, that was his goal, was to design a landscape that was painterly. Right. And the first thing that he did is he asked the permission of the city to uh, reroute a river yeah, that ran through the town. He applied for a permit. He had yeah. to apply for a permit and he was denied because people for a very interesting reason, they, they, they had a meeting, a town meeting, and they said, uh, so you want to reroute the river that runs through the city, so it runs through your property, and he said yes. And they said, why? He says, and he said, so I can irrigate some very fancy exotic flowers that I have, which need a lot of water, and those were, you know, irises and uh, water lilies, right. and a lot of them were from Africa. And he wanted to make his ponds. Right. And these people said, they said, we don't want to do it because we're afraid that your flowers that come from Africa are going to, you know, affect the water in some way, <laughs> right? right. And, and make it, in, you know, not good to drink. Contaminate. It's it going to contaminate way. the water. Right. Exactly, that's the term that we use. It's going to contaminate the water, and we won't be able to drink it. And the animals won't be able to drink it. All they all go crazy, and you know, everything will go to pot. So they denied him. He had to prove to them that his plants were harmless. 
<laughs> so you probably had to hire some environmentalist of some sort at that time that uh well he probably called the french government and said send me the head botanist <laughs> you know, the, the ministry <laughs> right the expert in african plants and uh uh, had him come and give a presentation <laughs> to the village and guarantee them that if the plants were to contaminate the water and the animals were going crazy, the French government would take care of it and compensate them. Maybe you know, I mean, I, I don't know exactly what happened, but he got permission. He was he was allowed to reroute the the river and have it run through his property, and uh, that was really the the sort of key point, you know, the key moment. Right in the history of his garden because now he had all the water he wanted mm -hmm. and so he could irrigate endlessly and he could also create ponds and he could you know I mean he could do whatever he wanted. Right. I think we should also talk about how you and I purchased our land, the land that we own and uh, that the main quality was that it was a photogenic piece of property that we would be able to create uh, whether it was uh, photographs or paintings it could be either it didn't matter and and in some ways we, we've done the same as Monet by purchasing land uh, we have now 120 acres we have three 40 acre parcels yes we do that we purchased for the you know essentially to photograph it Right. Especially the last one. And it took us a while to explain to the, our real estate <laughs> agent what exactly we were looking for because he had never heard something like that before. But then when it came to the last piece of property that we bought, he said, it's a beautiful place to photograph. Do you remember it? I think he'll really enjoy it. <laughs> At that time, he uh, came to understand you know, what we were looking for. It's difficult to explain. It is. Because I, I told him, I said, for the last one, because I think at that point we had it more clearly in mind, what we wanted. I told him, I said, you know, what I want is something that's photogenic. And he had no idea what that meant. I mean, he said, but they're all photogenic. I said, well, yeah, but some of them are more than others. Right. Uh, and, and I said, you know, so if you have one that's particularly beautiful, you know, that's the one we want. I don't care if I can put a septic tank on it. I don't care if it has, uh, you know, privacy or, you know, whatever. I just want it to be photogenic. Um, and uh, I remember when he described the one we bought last, he said, I said, well, he said, well, I have one that I think... Would, would be good. And I said, well, what does it look like? He, says, he said, is it flat? Is it uh, steep? I mean, does it have a bluff? What, what is it? He said, well, it's flat until it's not flat anymore, then it's flat again. <laughs> that was his description for the property. But he said the view in right. 360 degrees is right. beautiful. <laughs> right. Yeah, he said that, yeah. I remember him saying that all around you. But then the beautiful. other thing that he said that was very interesting is he said, it's mostly good at sunset. And and we've now that we have it, we we photograph there essentially at sunrise. I prefer sunrise, and I, and I think it's superior at sunrise. Yes, he's yeah. never been to the property at sunrise. Well, if a, it faces straight west, so it's oriented east west, you know, and there is a bluff, and the bluff when you stand on it looks straight west, and when a property faces straight west, it's usually better at sunrise because at sunset you have the sun right in front of you and. Of course, it doesn't work as well. Right. So, you know, at, at sunset, what you have to do is go down the bluff and photograph with the sun behind you shooting towards the bluff. Right. Th then it's, it's good. 
Uh, but you know, all of that put aside, uh, those are properties that we own because of their photogenic qualities. I mean, we go there to photograph. Right. Uh, and actually, we created an artist in residence program on on the, the last property because it's so photogenic and because it's half a mile from Petrified Forest National Park. So you're as close as you can ever be to a national park without being in the park. Mm -hmm. So you can do anything you want. You don't have to obey the park regulations because we make the regulations. Right. <laughs> do you find any inspiration in books? I mean, are there any books that stand out in your, your mind that whether you look at uh, pictures or that you read that inspire you? I mean, do you have any in your collection that you would say that inspire you? I have a very large collection of books, and yes, a lot of them are very inspirational. Yeah, but name a couple that. Well, it, it changed over time, uh -huh. um, and and I think um, you know it's going to happen for everybody. We we inspire at different things at different times because we search for different things. Right. And I, I, my guess, well, it's interesting because originally uh, the the very first books of landscape photography that I saw that really uh, impacted me was Ansel Adams and Edward Weston. And uh, as time goes went by, I, I became more and more interested in, in the work of David Munch. And I think I was interested in it at some point, and, and then that my interest waned, and now I'm more interested again in, in, in the work of, uh, of, of people like uh, Edward Weston and, and things mm -hmm. like that. So your interest is going so to change. So it changes as your, uh, as your art evolves. Your needs evolve. Mm -hmm. uh, as you're seeking to create a specific kind of photograph. Uh, and and really, you know, you get to a point also where you find inspiration in your own work. Right. In yourself. Right. And that's a point that is not going to happen immediately because in the very beginning you're... you're because take, photography is such a technical medium, as I explained before, right. you're bound to be quite unimpressed with your own work because there's so many technical flaws. Well, and that's the hardest thing to teach. But right. I also think it's the one that everybody wants to learn. And it's the hardest to teach. Well, I think, yeah, I mean, everybody wants to create work that's satisfying to them. But before we can do so, we have to find somebody else that has done something that we want to emulate. Uh, and very often, that's the part that's missing. Uh, we, as, as uh, a lot of people jump into photography without really having seen work that's really impactful to them, that we are trying to emulate. And... And uh, when that happens, they, they are just trying without really having a specific goal. Right. And, and I think it's very important to have a specific goal. I mean, you know, if trying to create the work that another photographer has created may not be, you know, the best idea in the world, because in the end you may be stuck creating that work and you lose your own personality. But it's certainly worth having a set of standards that you're trying to emulate, right. you know, as far as the, the print quality, as far as the image quality. Yeah. I know I really found inspiration. Uh, the Arizona State University in Tempe, Arizona was having a exhibition on Picasso sketchbooks. And I found that to be very inspiring, more so than the finished piece. Because when you look at an artist's sketchbooks, you can visually see all the things that they were thinking and playing with and everything. And I found that, to, for me, that was more inspirational than the, the, the final piece. But I also was able to come to an understanding of how that piece evolved how that piece was created, uh, how it changed, and everything, and uh, so uh, 
what, what is happening when you see some of these sketchbooks uh, in terms of a painter is, is you're really looking at the process right. that this person went through in order to create the final piece. You have sort of the blueprint. It's a little bit like looking at the blueprint for a house right. or for a bridge or for any sort of structure because what you're looking at is how that particular structure was built. Uh, you know, like when we bought the house, we did not get to see it built because it was already built, but we went to see other similar houses that were in the process of being built, and I took photographs, and so we had them in different stages, you know, with just the framing, or then with the drywall, and then with mm -hmm. the stucco, and on and on and on. And, and, and by seeing the process, you become a lot more appreciative of the final product. Yes, you do. You now look at your house and you're like, oh, I know what's behind this wall. There is drywall and then there's two by fours and then there's a concrete foundation and then, you know, on and on and on. And, and you become, as you become more knowledgeable, you become more appreciative. You know, you, your understanding fosters your appreciation of the right. work, right? Especially if it's well done. Right. And the same works the same process is at work with art. If you can learn how a painter created this masterpiece, go back to the sketches that he did and go back to how he started the painting and, and how he worked it and, and eventually completed it, you, you get to understand the process and you get to have a richer understanding of what he did and a better appreciation for the final product. Yes, you do. You also get to understand that that person was human. Because, you know, if we go back to the house, when you look at the framing of a house, you know, with the two-by-fours and, and all of that, the framing for a house is very rarely perfect. Okay? It's actually done in a very rough manner. Yes, the, it is. the goal is to make a strong structure, but it's going to be hidden behind drywall, so it doesn't really matter how, what it looks like. Okay, there's all sort of nails sticking out and sometimes the two by fours are not really aligned and sometimes they are sort of, you know, level and other times they are not level. Uh, you know, so, you, so you, you start to think, God, I can do that, mm -hmm. right? Uh, I don't have to be perfect from day one. No. I can, I can, there's a human side all of a sudden that comes into play. You, you realize that the person that has made this thing that you're so impressed with was a human being that they were imperfect, that, that the perfection came at a later stage. Okay? So when you look at the sketchbooks of Picasso, you know, what you're also realizing is that he made mistakes. Right? You know, there was good sketches, but there was also sketches that weren't so good. And, and that the beginning of the idea is very, very simple. Mm -hmm. right? That it might just be one line, okay? or two lines, and then from those lines he evolved into a, a sketch of a painting and then into a full-fledged painting that would take days or weeks or months. Right. So this person is becoming more human mm -hmm. in your eyes. And when somebody becomes more human, they lose the aura and, and the impressive appearance that they have as, as some sort of semi-god, right? And, and you start to think, well, maybe I could do that, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that's where you become inspired. I, I, there is no doubt in my mind that a sketchbook is much more inspiring than a final painting. In terms of giving you the desire to do something like that yourself. Right. That gets you, you excited. You can do it. It's right. basically telling you in a non-verbal manner, you can do it. Right. This is a, a process that other human beings can follow. But even if it's not in exactly that same person's style, it'll get you excited and you will, you know, 
you may have a revelation of what you need to do or what you need to put into your work. You know? How to get started. Yeah, exactly. The hardest part in any sort of endeavor is getting started. Right. You know? Well, that's where you and I always say, you know, a little bit every day. And when it's very, very difficult, I always remember what you say, and that's press on regardless. And I tell you, that really uh, helps me a lot. Yeah, I, I mean, there's many, times. Uh, you know, we could we call them tactics, you know. <clears throat> right, strategies. Oh, strategies. <laughs> yeah. A tactic is a short-term thing, a strategy is a long-term thing. Oh, is it? Yeah. Oh, okay. Uh, so, but, so tactic. Well, it depends what you want it to be, but I don't want to go into the detail of the difference in both. But, but yeah, there's many ways, you know. Um, a little bit every day. What was the other one? Press on regardless. Press on regardless. And also one that I find to be extremely, extremely valuable is lowering, lowering your standards. Because a lot of people, and that's you know what I talked about earlier on, a lot of people think that they have to excel when they are just starting. Right. You can't. You can't. So you've got to lower your standards. You've got to say to yourself, that's okay. I mean, I'm not going to do the best job in the world, but I'm just starting. This is my first try. And, and that relaxes you. Right. I mean, I very often will lower my standards. That doesn't mean that I'm going to create something that's unacceptable. But exactly. That, that relaxes me. That makes me feel like, you know, I can do this. It takes some pressure off. It takes the pressure off. Right. Uh, I mean, people, you know, always, for example, learning a foreign language. If you don't lower your standards, you will never learn a foreign language. Because right. there's no way that you ever will have the accent, the pronunciation that a native speaker or has. Or that you'll find the right words to say. Right. Right. Um, you must lower your standards. You can't be perfect. It's not in the cards. Right. right. But I find that... It seems to me that photographers, unlike painters, feel that they have to succeed so much faster and right away than a painter does. Because, again, of the fact that it's a very technical medium. Right. They look at a photograph by some famous photographer, whoever that may be, that has achieved the highest level of quality, and they think, okay, if I get the same equipment that that person has used, you know, from A to Z, right. whatever that is, I should be able to create this piece. Or something like it, obviously not the same photograph, but one that's just as good technically. Right. And they don't succeed because there is way more than just buying the equipment and having the equipment. There is how to use the equipment, and it's not so simple. Right. But then they beat each themselves over the head with an ugly stick for years because they think that there is a problem with them. That since they have all the equipment, they should be able to do that, but they can't. Right? Um, and at that point, you know, they, they, they get to be a little angry and sometimes depressed and frustrated, definitely. Right. 